you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 909, Acts 1, 1 through 11. And this is our second uh, sermon in this series that we began last week in the book of Acts. And we saw that even though this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it really should be something like the Acts of Jesus Christ, the continuing work of Jesus Christ, because what we see here is what Jesus Christ continues to do, continue, continues to teach, how he continues to direct his people. And Jesus command, gives commands, as we saw last week, through his Holy Spirit. He gives his commands to the apostles, and it's concerning the kingdom of God. And that was the big picture. That was the big picture overview that we looked at last week, looking at the first three verses of this book. Today what we're going to do is we're going to come to this first command, the first order Jesus gives to his apostles, as well as a gift, the gift that he gives to his apostles in order to enable them to accomplish what he commanded them to do. God enables us to do what he commands us to do. And we see that this is not just given to the apostles, not just given to the early church, but this is the mission given to us, given throughout church history as it plays out throughout church history, even for us today. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the living God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words. We thank you for this amazing vision. And this is a vision we can't even quite understand. This is a real event that happened. Well, the glorified Christ, the resurrected, risen Lord and Savior, was then taken, ascended into heaven. And the promised Holy Spirit came to us as church. And Lord, we beg you for that Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you. Because we can't hear from you. Scripture makes no sense unless your Holy Spirit enlightens it, illuminates what is heard. And Father, likewise, I cannot speak anything of of eternal value without your Spirit speaking through me, speaking your words. So Father, I beg you, I pray that your Spirit will speak through me, and we will hear you, we will see Christ, Christ will be exalted, and that we will be changed. Each one of us here, Father, I pray each one of us here will be more, changed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, years ago when I was working as a project manager, building large engineered pumps, 
I was located in the division's headquarters in the, the main factory in, in Phelpsburg, New Jersey. But we had multiple factories around the world from which we would get components for our projects. So I had to coordinate all these different factories. And there were two factories in particular, one in Spain and one in Italy, that caused me many days of frustration. And it wasn't because of the quality of the work, no. Rather, it was because I could never get in touch with anyone in these plants. So the people in these two factories seemed to be perpetually on vacation. The plant would close down in the summer for one or two months, so you couldn't get to them then. And then there were various holidays I, uh, that you never even heard of that they were closed for. And one such of these holidays, when, when I tried to c- get in touch with the plant and they were closed, was Ascension Day. They were closed for Ascension Day. I had never even heard of Ascension Day. Have any of you had a day off from work because of Ascension Day? No, I've never heard of it. Ascension Day is the holiday celebrated 40 days after Easter, commemorating what we just read today, Jesus' ascension into heaven. And I grew up Roman Catholic, and I don't ever remember celebrating Ascension Day. But Jesus' ascension into heaven, this is really not something that we think about much. If if, if you're honest, we don't think about this. Even as Bible-believing Christians, now we believe it's true, we believe it took place because we read about it in Scripture, but we don't really emphasize it. Right? Think about how many sermons have you heard about the ascension. I'm try- I was trying to think about that. I, I have- don't remember any that I have heard about the ascension. Think about if you're sharing the gospel with someone, right? an, an unbeliever. Is the first thing you're going to mention to them the ascension? Or are you even going to mention the ascension? <clears throat> we focus on Jesus, right? That, that's right. We focus on his sinless life. We, we focus on his teachings. We focus on his morality. We focus on his parables. We rightly focus on his sacrificial death as an atonement for the sins of his people. For us, the cross is central to our teaching of the theology. And and the resurrection, the resurrection is is the validation that this sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. So we, we rightly celebrate the resurrection. And as Reformed Christians, we don't just celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but every Lord's Day, every Sunday, first day of the week, we celebrate the resurrection. But what about the ascension? What about the ascension? Do we see Jesus' ascension to heaven as as central to the gospel? Do we see it as essential to the Christian life? Do we see it as essential to the mission of the church? Or do we see it just as as one verse at the end of Luke and and a a few verses here in studying Acts? And and really, to tell the truth, I kind of saw this as the preliminary when I'm reading through Acts. I think that chapter 2 in Pentecost, that's really where it begins. And then when we see the apostles going out and witnessing the gospel going out and the the stories of Paul, that's where we think the the good stuff takes place. This is kind of the preliminaries we we need to get through. And this is what I I thought of much. I didn't really give it much thought. But what we're going to do today is we're going to ask, why do we have the ascension? Why is the ascension important? And I'm going to go in beyond that. I'm going to say, why is the ascension essential? Why is it essential for the mission of the church? Why is, it, why is it important for us? What does it mean for us today? Why is it essential for my mission as a Christian, your mission as a follower of Christ? And what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage. And as before we go through it, I, I want you to, to kind of put yourself back in, into the thinking of the apostles. Try to get in the head of the apostles at this time and as we look at these verses. Try to put yourself in this place, in their place. So this is a situation that the apostles were facing. Jesus had risen from the dead. The disciples saw him, him brutally crucified on the cross. He was dead. He was laid in a tomb. And on, on the third day, as he predicted, Jesus rose from the dead. On Easter morning, they saw him. The, the women went to the tomb. He was alive. The angel says, he is not here. He's alive. He was resurrected. 
And although Jesus looked the same, although he had the same body, his body was different. It was different from the body that he had. Jesus had a a glorified body. And it's the same type of body that each one of us, each one of us who are in Christ, will one day have when Christ returns. And Jesus' glorified body wasn't constrained. It wasn't constrained by space. He could instantaneously travel from one place to the other. He was in Emmaus, and instantaneously he arrived in Jerusalem. He could travel through locked doors and walls. His disciples, they were all together, gathered in a locked room, and he appeared in the room. He could not, his body would not decline with age, would not grow weak. Death no longer had a claim over Jesus' body. And my friends, this was the person. This was the glorified Jesus who is now leading them, who is now teaching the disciples for 40 days, the glorified risen Christ. And I can imagine that these apostles were on the top of the world, right? Can you imagine if Jesus, the glorified Jesus, was standing, was right here with them? They were on the top of the world. All the fear, all the despair, disillusionment, the anxiety they felt when when Jesus was arrested and, and when he was on trial and when he was hanging on the cross and for the three days he was in the tomb. All that was gone. This fear had turned into into an incredible joy, an incredible hope. And they were ready. They were ready now to say, all right, we got got our our king here. We're ready now to see our messianic hopes realized. They were ready to go. And you remember, we've talked about this many times, what the prevailing view was among the disciples during Jesus' messianic mission, what, what 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 his view during his earthly ministry was of the messianic vision. We see this most clearly during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So this was just a few days before his arrest and his crucifixion. But do you remember the crowds? They were, they were waving palm branches. They were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they saw Jesus as a king. They saw Jesus as a political leader, as a military leader. They saw him as, as a man like King David, as a man like one of the judges who would deliver Israel from, from subjection to the, to the Gentiles and, and to the Romans. And this was their view. This was their view. And if Jesus, as as a miracle worker and and a mighty speaker and a mighty teacher, if this was their view during the triumphal entry, how much more, how much more when he was now resurrected, he had now defeated death. Now they were ready. He he was not bound by space and time. Jesus was was a superman. Jesus was undefeatable. He was better than Samson with Samson's supernatural strength. And I think this is what the disciples saw. They saw, this is our time. This is our time of liberation. We are ready to go. We are ready to be free. They were ready to cast out the Romans. They were ready to start this movement. I think that's what they were thinking at this point. But what's the first command? What's the first order that their resurrected leader gives to them, gives to his followers? We see it in verse 4. It says, and while they were staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I hate waiting fiercely. I want to go. I want to act. I I, want to do something. When I have an idea, when I have a plan, I am ready to run with it. And I think that's what the disciples are feeling. The disciples had a plan. They saw everything set. They were ready to run with it. But Jesus tells them to wait. They had Jesus for 40 days. They were ready to see him act. They were ready to see him fulfill their plans. See, they wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. But Jesus tells them to wait. And isn't this so familiar? Right? Don't don't we all experience this? Aren't we always ready to run off and fulfill what what we think God has for us? And don't we get frustrated when God, through his providence, tells us to stop? 
tells us to slow down, tells us to wait. It could be that relationship that you want. You want to be married? It could, it could be that job we talked about. We pray for people looking for jobs. It could be that, that job. It could be that ministry. It could be that school that you want, that place, that opportunity. And, and, and we feel that if, that if we if we had that, everything would be ready. We're ready to serve him. We're ready to glorify him. But God, through his providence, God puts the brakes on our plans. He puts these brakes on these things that we think God is doing in our lives. So why? Why, why does, does God order his disciples not to leave Jerusalem? Why does he order them to wait? What are they waiting for? Well, continuing in verse 4 and 5, Jesus tells them why to wait. He says, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And they needed the Holy Spirit because they were not ready to go. See, it's the Spirit who will give them the power. It's the Spirit that will give them the wisdom to carry out Christ's mission for them. See, the Holy Spirit is the connection that they have to Christ, to Christ's mind, so they understand his thoughts. They understand his plan for the church. And this is what they were waiting for. This is what they needed. This was essential for their mission. But this instruction, this goes completely over their heads. It goes over their heads. They, they completely missed what Jesus was telling them. It kind of reminded me like when I was in, in math class and, and I missed the first step on a problem and they were about four or five steps ahead and I had no idea what was going on. It went completely over my head. I'm sure some of you have been in that situation as well. It went completely over their head. The disciples misunderstood Jesus. And how do we know they misunderstood Jesus? We see it in the question they asked. In verse 6, it says, So when they came together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this statement shows that they missed what Jesus was saying. It, it, it shows that they were thinking worldly. Their thinking was too small. Their thinking was self-focused. And they had no understanding, really, about what Jesus was actually planning to accomplish. They're, they're, they're blind to the fullness of God's plan of redemption. And the disciples' error, really, here is twofold. Now, the correct, Jesus' plan is related to the kingdom of God. We see this in verse 3. However, they misunderstood both the timing of this plan and the scope of this plan. So let's first look at the timing. They think the timing is immediately. They think the timing is now. They expected the fullness of the kingdom now, right? Jesus was resurrected. They expected him now to restore the kingdom at the present time, right? He is their deliverer. He is, he is their new King David. He is their new Samson. He's the one to free them from the Gentile oppressors, right? He had the power. He overcame death. What, what else do you need? We, we've got, a, we've got a, a, a resurrected Savior, we're ready. It makes perfect sense. The restoration of the kingdom would be immediate. But this misunderstanding that they had is really a misunderstanding that not only did they have then, but Jesus' disciples had during his earthly ministry. And I think the church struggles with that same misunderstanding throughout history. I think even today we have the same misunderstanding. And we saw this particularly last year when we studied the book of, of 1 Corinthians. Do you remember when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians? It, it was all these errors, and, and, and Paul is pointing out the errors in this, this church. And you remember I mentioned all these errors can come down to, to one theological term. And I mentioned the theological term. I said it's over-realized eschatology. And you're probably saying, what? What does that mean? You're probably trying to remember over-realized eschatology. Basically what they mean is they expect the fullness of the kingdom of God now. That's what they're expecting. They expected all the glory now. 
They expected all the full promises, all the joy, that are real promises, real joy, that we will experience for all eternity when Christ returns. They expected it now. And don't we do the same thing? See, we, we need to be really careful not to be too critical of these disciples or, or the Corinthians. Because are we any different? Don't we expect the glory now? Don't we expect to be respected by the culture? Don't we expect to be in positions of power as, as good Christian people? Don't we ignore passages in Scripture that tell us that we are strangers and aliens in this fallen world, a world that is opposed to God, that is opposed to the gospel? We ignore passages that say that we are to take up our cross daily like our Savior. If the world hated Jesus, that it will hate us, his followers. See, the reality is there is glory. There is glory, and that glory will come. But it's not now. Now is not the time of glory for the Christian. Now is the time of the cross. Now is the time of service for the Christian. And Jesus' rebuke in in verse 7 really could have been directed to the Corinthians, could have been directed to most of church history, could be directed to us. Verse 7 says, He said to them, It is not up for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, Jesus is saying, this is not something you need to know. You don't need to know. The setting, uh, the times, and the seasons, this is known by the Father. This is his job. Jesus is saying, this is above your pay grade. And we need to be very careful here. We need to be very careful because there is so much temptation, so much temptation for us to try to make heaven on earth. And that's what this question is. They were trying to make heaven on earth. There's a temptation for us, each one of us, to look for something in this world to provide that which only God can provide. Something in this world, that which only God can provide. And God will provide when he returns in the new creation, when Christ returns. Now, we have to be careful. We, we, there is a creation mandate. We are given, as Christians, the task to improve this world. We are to, to cultivate the garden out of, out, of, out of the wilderness. We are to subdue the creation. That is our task. This is our responsibility. But this world is fallen, and it can only be restored by God. We cannot restore it to perfection. We cannot, no matter how hard we try, we cannot make heaven on earth. Only God can do that. And all our efforts at creating a heaven on earth, they're not only doomed to fail, but when we are looking, we put our hope on this, our trust in what we do, they are also sinful. So they represent the same sinful pride that we see in the building of the Tower of Babel. So the people said, we don't need God. We're going to build up to God. We're going to reach God ourselves. And that's what we try to do when we want to build a heaven on earth. But we need God to come down and God to build it. And when we do this, we'll face the same judgments, the same divine judgments that fell on the Tower of Babel. So this is the first error with the question of verse 6. It was an error of timing. But there's a second error here too. And this is an error of scope. And here we see the disciples' really small and myopic understanding of the kingdom of God. What they are is they're ethnocentric, ethnocentric in their thinking. For them, it's all about us. It's all about Israel. It's when are you, Jesus, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they assume God's plan was only for Israel. And you see, their thinking is too small. See, they couldn't even imagine what God was doing. They couldn't even imagine the fullness and the grandeur of God's plan. This kingdom was not just limited to one nation. It was a kingdom for all the world. It was to bless all the world through tiny Israel. And they couldn't see that. They couldn't see it at all. But what we're seeing here is is the fulfillment of God's promise to their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, And I will make of you 
Abraham a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we're seeing the fulfillment now. This is the fulfillment. It's not just Abraham and his descendants. It is the whole world through Christ to be blessed. And Jesus is that blessing. Jesus is that blessing to all the families of the earth. The kingdom of God goes beyond the people of Israel. It goes to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. That is the kingdom of God. And the disciples thinking it was too small. They could not even comprehend the scope of God's magnificent plan of redemption that was being fulfilled before their eyes. Now Jesus has to correct the disciples. We see this in verse 8. What he does is he he draws their attention away from this speculation of what God's going to do, when he's going to bring in the kingdom. And he focuses on what their responsibility is. He gives them their marching orders. Jesus says, don't worry about the kingdom. Don't worry about the time it's going to be restored. Be faithful to what I tell you to do now. And what is the thing he tells them to do? What is the command that's given? We see this in book verse 8. Now, verse 8 is, is a very important uh, book, uh, verse in this book, because really what verse 8 does is it gives us an outline of the entire book of Acts. It's, a, it's an important book, and we, we see where, where he says that you will be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And if we go through, we see in Acts, we see the disciples working in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then with Paul, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. So this is important to, that we see here. Let me just read this again. Verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is what they're to wait for. They are to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them so that they will receive power. Now what is this power for? What, what, what is the power they're going to receive? What is it for? Is it for them to exalt themselves? Is this the, for them to enrich themselves? Is it for them to have their, their best life now? No. This power is given to them for one purpose, a specific purpose. And that's that they can, as disciples, they can fulfill the command that God has given to them. That command to be his witnesses. And this is the function of the Holy Spirit. He gives us power to the disciples so that we can be Christ's witnesses. And this verse, as, as I mentioned, is the outline of the book of Acts. See, after the introductory chapter that we're looking at, the first part, the Holy Spirit then comes upon the church in chapter 2. And then in chapter 2 through chapter 7, it deals with the, with, the, with the gospel going throughout the city of Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. It goes to Judea and Samaria. And then from, from Acts chapter 13 through 28, it records the expansion of the gospel through the Roman world to the ends of the earth. But my friends, this mission is still going on. It doesn't stop at Acts 28. There are actually churches called Acts 29 churches because they rightly see that this mission is still going on today. We are in Acts 29. We are still his witnesses. We are to take the gospel to the end of the earth. Albany here is the end of the earth. That is our end of the earth. Lee County is the end of the earth. America's is the end of the earth. We are all part of this plan. Acts 1.8 is a command that is given to us and being fulfilled now in us. And this command is to be a witness. So what, is it, what does it mean to be a witness? What is the function of a witness? Well, think about a courtroom. If you think about a courtroom, any of you have been on jury duty or any of your attorneys or, or have been charged with a crime or been, been in a, a civil case, you know, you know what, what the roles are in the courtroom. You have different, you have different people. You, you have, you have the, the plaintiff. You have the defendant. You have the, the attorneys. You have the judge. 
You have the jury, you have the bailiff, and you have the witnesses. Now, each of these roles have a different function. The plaintiff and the defendants, really their only concern is winning the case. That's their function. They want to win the case. That's their main concern. The attorneys now represent their clients. They use their, their knowledge of the laws, the legal system, their expertise to help bring benefit to their clients so their clients can win the case. Now, the judge, the judge is, is responsible for the entire process. Make sure the process is fair, it's impartial, that the law is rightly applied. The jury, those are the ones who decide the, the, the merits of the case. They hear the facts. They make a decision based on instructions and, and the facts and, and instructions given by the judge. Then there's the bailiff. The bailiff really doesn't care what's going on about the facts of the case. He has one job, to make sure there's order in the courtroom. He is, he's to provide the, the physical security in the courtroom. But what about witnesses? What is the job of the witness? Is the witness to, to, to try to, to influence the outcome? Is the, is the, does the witness decide the guilt? Does the, does the witness uh, provide security? No. The witness job is one job, communicate facts, especially if you're an eyewitness. The eyewitness simply tells what they have seen. They give a personal testimony. And my friends, this is our job. As Christians, this is our job. We simply share the facts of what we've seen. We give the facts of what we have experienced about Jesus, how we've experienced Jesus. And when I think of a Christian witness, I think of the account of the Gospel of John. John chapter 9, there's, there's a great example of a witness. This is the man when Jesus healed the, the man born blind. And after he's healed this man, Jewish authorities, they come over to him, and they, they, they badger the man who, who's, who's, who's healed. And they say, how could you have been healed by a sinner? And the man says in John 9.25, perfect witness. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind and now I see. He's just testifying. I was blind, I had an encounter with Jesus, and now I see. That's a witness. We are to tell what Jesus has done, what Jesus has personally done for us. We're not the attorney. We're not to argue the case. Our job is not to convince others, not to, to win arguments. We're not the judge. We're not the jury. We don't convict people of sin. We're not the bailiff. We don't use physical force to get them to comply with Christianity. We are simply the witnesses. We share our personal testimony. That is it. That is our job. It seems simple, doesn't it? But the truth is it's impossible. It's impossible to do this job without the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus predicates his command with this promise. The promise that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. See, it's only when we have the Holy Spirit that we are able to be Jesus' witnesses. So why is that? Being coarse, because in order to be a witness for Jesus, we must first know Jesus. In order to be his witness, we must first know Jesus. And the only way we can know Jesus is through the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus is not physically here. We don't, we don't have Jesus. He's not sitting in this sanctuary with us. He is not physically here. We do not see him. We cannot interact with him as we would interact with another person. So how do we know Jesus? How do we encounter Jesus if we don't physically have him here? Where do we see him? Well, the answer where we see him is in Scripture. We have Jesus in Scripture. We encounter Jesus through Scripture. But even here, we need to be careful. Scripture alone, Scripture without the illumination of the Holy Spirit is unable to let us know Jesus. The best it can do is enable us to know about Jesus. But by itself, it's not enough to enable us to know Jesus. Let me give an example to try and explain what I mean. When I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, I'd read a, a biography, a biography about the now late Pastor Tim Keller. And I know a lot about Tim Keller. 
I know his influences. I know I, I've heard his sermons. I've heard his preaching. But I don't know Keller. When Keller was alive, he did not know me. I never met him. I know facts about him. I know teachings about him. But I do not know the man. In reading a book, I do not know the man. Well, the same is true with Jesus. The Bible alone can at best tell us about Jesus. But in order to know Jesus, as we know a person, we must have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our connection to personally know Jesus as we would know another person. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, then, as I mentioned last week, the Bible becomes alive. The Scripture becomes alive. It's, it's no longer a static book about ancient times and ancient people and ancient events, but it is a living, personal message to each of us. Jesus speaks to us through Scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, I want, I want to be clear because there's an error that I, I want to warn you about. Scripture is always the Word of God. It is always the Word of God, whether we have the Holy Spirit or not. It doesn't become the Word of God when it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. The problem is we just simply cannot see it. We, have no, we don't have the ability to see it until the Holy Spirit illuminates it for us. To put it in the simplest way possible, the Holy Spirit is our connection to Christ. Our connection to Christ. He's the only way that we can know Christ. Know his direction for our lives. Really receive the, the peace and comfort that comes from Christ. Know the power of Christ. Receive salvation of Christ. All of it comes through the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to the ascension, and really the necessity of the ascension. See, Jesus must go in order for the Holy Spirit to come. We see this in, in, in John chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Listen to these words he says to them. He says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send, you, send him to you. And Jesus goes on to say, I, have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whether, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, will glorify Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, the Holy Spirit is continuing the work of Jesus. The Spirit does not speak his own authority, but he speaks Jesus' words. He is our connection with Jesus. And this is, this is why it's to our advantage that Jesus goes away, so that he can send the Spirit. See, Jesus as a person, now he's both fully God and he's fully man. But as a man, even as a glorified man, Jesus is limited in time and space. Jesus can only be in one place at a time. Now his divinity is omnipresent, but his humanity is not. His humanity is localized. And after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus, as the God-man, could only be in one place at a time. He could only interact directly and physically with his disciples. But now, now after the, the ascension, the, the God-man is still in one location. Scripture tells us he is the right hand of God the Father. And what is he doing? Well, Scripture tells us that he is interceding for us, that Jesus is praying for us, that he is preparing a place for us. We, we looked at that in, in, our, in our confession. He is our great high priest now before God the Father. But Jesus is not physically present here with us. My friends, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is fully divine person. The Holy Spirit, he is omnipresent. 
The Holy Spirit having the same being and essence of Jesus. He has God the Son, the mind of Christ, the will of Christ is all in the Holy Spirit and is with us. Do you see what it is? We have a Jesus, we have connection with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He is here with us. And here's the advantage for us. Here's the reason why Jesus ascended into heaven and gave the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we see exponential growth after this of the church that we see through Acts and through church history. See, now every believer, every believer, we have personal connection to Jesus. We have our own personal Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Through the, the Spirit, we have direct and uninterrupted, complete access to Jesus 24-7 something that we could never have had if he was here physically. See, this wasn't the case during Jesus' earthly ministry. He couldn't be in more than one place. Remember when, when, uh, when Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus was sick? They had to send a note to Jesus. Jesus was not there. They could not just pray to Jesus and him show up. They had to send a note to him. And they even said when, when Jesus came back, he said, Lazarus would not have died if you were here. Mary knew this. And even after the resurrection, even in his glorified body, Jesus could not be in more than one place at a time. Jesus could not be in Emmaus and in Jerusalem at the same time. Now, he can, he can travel quickly. He can instantaneously be there. But he still had to be in one place at a time. And if Jesus had not ascended and rather stayed on earth, the growth of the church would have been limited to those who had a physical interaction with Jesus. <clears throat> See, regeneration is a supernatural process. We cannot do regeneration. A human cannot make, become a new creation in Christ without a direct encounter of Christ himself. It is a supernatural work. And it requires this encounter with God himself. And this means that if Jesus was still here and we didn't send the Holy Spirit, this means each believer would have had directly been converted by Jesus himself. And even after three years of his earthly ministry, even after his resurrection, even after 40 days of teaching and ministry to the church, the church was only about 120 people. Only 120 people. I know church planters who their first day have more than 120 people. And we're talking about God doing it. They're not God. No matter how great a church planter is, they're not God. So 120 people, that is not a very big church. But after the ascension, after the ascension with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, now every believer, every believer has a personal and direct access to Jesus himself. But it gets even better than this. See, as believers, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are witnessing about Jesus to unbelievers, it's actually Jesus himself. Jesus himself, who is testifying through us. And this is where the power comes from. This is where exponential growth comes from. Because Jesus is the one who is doing the growth. Jesus is in every believer. It it almost seems blasphemous to say this. But when people encounter a spirit-filled Christian, they actually encounter Jesus. Jesus is there. Not only are we his witnesses, but Jesus is acting and speaking through our witness. And as Christians, we are filled with the light. Through the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the light of Jesus. But here's the sad fact. Here's the sad fact. Every Christian is filled with this light of Jesus. But I would guess the vast majority, probably 95% of Christians, what we do is we hide this light. We hide this light under a bushel. We don't shine Jesus to all we meet. We don't speak Jesus to all we meet. We don't share his love with others through our behavior, through our actions, through our words. And I'm not talking about a forced way. I'm talking about natural. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if we are filled with Jesus, if Jesus is speaking through us, it should naturally erupt to everyone we come in contact with. That's what I'm saying. A few years ago, 
Lynn and I attended a conference at Briarwood PCA in, in, in Birmingham. And, and Harry Reader, late Harry Reader, he, uh, he really gave us this eye-opening exercise. And what he did is he took, he, he took people from the, from the group and he made them church planters. There were two church planters. And one church planter, he would go out and we'd go out into the, into the audience and he would make a convert and bring him back to the church. And then he would go out and make a second convert and bring him back to the church and so forth. The second guy, the second church planter, he went out, made a convert, then the two of them went out and made two more converts. Then the four of them went out and made four more converts. Then the eight of them went out and made eight more converts. And you can see he only did this exercise for a minute. And after a minute, the first church had about five people in it. The second church had about 40 people in it. And that is the power. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working in every single believer. But sadly, what happens is the, the vast majority of, of, of Christians operate like the first church. Oh, that's the pastor. That's what we hire you to do. You go out and make, make uh, converts, and we'll stay out here, and we'll get fed. And then we get mad at you because you're not feeding us because you're out making converts. And that's what we see. And sadly, that's what most people sit back and get, get served. But my friends, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We are all to go out and make converts. Well, Jesus speaks just as much through every spirit-filled Christian as he does through a pastor, as he does through an elder. And that's where the, that's where the power comes out. That's where the excitement comes out. So we don't want to put our, our, our light under a bushel. We want to let it shine. We want to be his witnesses. This is the command of Jesus himself. And, and, and he gives us the power. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He has that direct connection to him to go out and to make these disciples to fulfill this calling. And I challenge you, I challenge each one of you at this point to go out sometime during this week. Go out and witness. Let the Holy Spirit come through you. Let Jesus shine through you and witness to at least one person. Who, who, show them who Jesus is. Show them what Jesus has done for you. Witness. Let that light shine. And I challenge you, invite people. Invite people to church. One person, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker. They may not come, but they can't come if you don't invite them. Remember, it's not our responsibility to change minds. We, we, are, we are not the attorney. We don't have to change people's minds. All we have to do is be faithful. Our responsibility is to be a witness. May we be faithful to that calling. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a, a challenge. You have given us a, an amazing calling, and that is to be your witnesses to be your witnesses in the world where you've put us, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, to our ends of the earth. And Father, you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have enabled us. You have given us that direct connection with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I pray, Father, that each one of us will be faithful, that we will shine Jesus to all we come in contact with, and that we will see a mighty explosion, a mighty moving of the Spirit, as many come to know you. We, we prayed earlier about the problems in this world, the problems in southwest Georgia, of people just in destructive lifestyles, and they need the gospel. And we have the gospel in us. We have the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that each one of us will shine forth that light. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.